Fans of the Dynasty Invest podcast, if you feel like there was one particular episode in the back catalogue in the anthology of Dynasty Invest podcast episodes that really, really, really was massively valuable to you, feel free to share that with a fellow dental colleague who's in a similar position so their understanding of finance can be elevated and they can hit the next level of financial success in their life. Also, as well as that, if you could take two seconds to rate and review this podcast, it would mean the world to me. What that would mean is that it drives this podcast further in terms of reach so that more dentists across the world can be able to benefit from the knowledge contained therein. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Dentists Who Invest podcast. Go and let's just go live on the Dentist Who Invest community and we are live any second. Welcome everyone to myself and Andrew's fund extravaganza and Andrew is also here to talk tonight about his brand new fund Conviction Life Sciences which I am looking forward to hear about. But first and foremost, welcome back to the community Andrew, how have you been? All right, it's immensely, it's, I mean, super great to be seeing you again. And obviously, I've seen you a bit since, uh, when did I do the first podcast interview with you? Two years ago? Hmm, no, 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 that was one year ago. Oh no, two years ago, you're right. (laughs) My my math is off. A year and a half, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. No, it's all good. So as I was just saying to you before you click record, I mean, at the moment, we're, 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 Closing this IPO, like a full uh, flotation on the London stock market on the 31st of this month. And this week and next is the core week of talking to the big investors in London, basically. And so it's 4 a.m. starts. And then I've done this. This is the sixth time I'll be talking about this today um, to an audience. And so normally I'm tucked up in bed at eight o'clock at the moment. So forgive me if I if I'm. If I sort of lose my um, my my mojo a bit in the course of this, it's because I started at four this morning. Well, you, you still you still seem to be coherent, at least for now, Andrew. Well, so I've, got, I've, just, I've just finished finished my coffee, and then I've got my my, my four sigmatic mushroom tea here. Just to keep <laughs> you know, I'm having a coffee as well. I might regret this later, but uh, well, exactly, I was worrying about that. Yeah. It's getting late in the evening. Anyway, so Andrew, obviously you're a returning guest to the Dentistry Invest podcast. Lots of people listening tonight will need no intro, but for those perhaps who have not yet heard of you, maybe it might be nice just to say a quick hello, who you are, and what exactly is it that you do? Yeah, well, thanks for that. So, yeah, so I suppose for my sins, I'm I'm a, well, I've said a few times today, it's it's a thing that us Brits don't like saying because it's kind of immodest, but I'm actually a best-selling author, you know, (laughs) Um, and... um, there are lots of best-selling authors on Amazon these days, but from you know, for what it's worth, we're sort of knocking up at nearly a hundred thousand copies of my first book, Soul: How to Own the World, which was first published ten years ago. And my business, my my main business, is called Plain English Finance. And so, basically, what we're all about is democratizing an understanding of finance and how transformational that is for your life. Um, and in my first book, as I say, which was originally published ten years ago, How to Own the World, we try to explain really you know what is the stock market what what are all the different financial markets and in the third edition of that book the one that was published a couple of years ago we included crypto in that which i know is dear to your heart um and so we've got a, a big following or a reasonably big following for, for, for a financial services business and what we're, we're really all about financial education um, rather than financial advice which is an important distinction to make so we're about empowering people to sort of take their own decisions about finance rather than having formal relationships where somebody says, you know, I've got X amount of money, please give me formal advice. Um, and we've been on that journey for nearly 10 years now. Um, and as, uh, you know, we expect to come on to later, um, we, 
for some years we've had a multi-asset fund, which is a super defensive fund, um, which is aimed at preserving capital, which it did very well last year. Um, but for the last year or so, because I spent the last eight years working in life sciences in biotech, basically biotech, medtech, you know, really at the cutting edge. Well, because your audience are dentists, they'll inherently know a lot more about this stuff than a lot of people. They probably know what CRISPR is and they know about all the new Nobel Prize winning science. But because I've been working in that area for the last eight years, for the last year, um, we've been working towards floating a company on the London stock market that looks to invest in in that sector, basically, because we we believe it's very exciting. So I hope that's a sufficiently um, succinct um, summary of what we what what we do and what we've been up to for the last few years. No, that is the perfect level of depth. And for those who don't know, I might have mentioned this on the podcast a few times. In fact, I definitely have. How do in the world was actually the book inspired my voyage into finance or certainly one of them anyway that was the very first one and there's some stuff in there that stuck with me forever like how money works how the market consistently appreciates when you buy the right thing of course you've got to be really careful about saying things like that it's about how you execute it as well but for anybody who hasn't read it top book and i can really 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 recommend it so we're going to venture into talking about that new fund that you spoke about earlier and later on as the evening progresses. But you know what? Here's a brilliant question. And, you know, for a man who has been there and done that and been in the finance world for as long as you have, here is a great question, I feel anyway. If you could go out there into the world and you had a magic wand, you could teach the world three things about finance to inspire them from the point of view of someone who's a novice or a beginner to the concept what would that be? Because I feel like this sets the tone very nicely for what we're delving into. So, yeah, that, that's a lovely question, actually, because I think we, we have a fairly compelling and kind of universal answer, which is that, you know, the first thing that, that one of the biggest challenges in modernity to, for human beings as a species, to, to modern human beings, is financial illiteracy. And actually, you know, I talked about this a lot, the sort of the wealthiest 1% in the world, more often than not nowadays, are simply the most financially literate 1% of people in the world. Um, so, in, you know, not that long ago, in 1987, when the Sunday Times Rich List was first published, something like 60, 65% of those people on that rich list were there because they'd inherited their wealth and they were landed aristocracy. The world is a lot more meritocratic now. And last year's Financial Times, um, sorry, um, t- Sunday Times Rich List was that those thousand people, nearly 90% of them are self-made. And you can kind of argue about what self-made means. So obviously, if you're from a wealthy background and, you know, if you're Stelios and you founded EasyJet, you, your parents can help you buy your first 737, right? So that's, that's you have a slightly unfair leg up. But, but broadly, the point is the world's becoming more meritocratic. And, you know, financial markets don't care what background you're from. They don't care about your education. They don't care where you come from. All they care about is that you're willing to learn about them. So I suppose that that's point one is that, you know, financial literacy is the key vector for solving a lot of life's problems. Because if you sort out your finances, the rest of life, you know, gets a lot easier. And I think the second thing to say is, so what's this, you know, if there's a simple thing that you can do, uh, if you take that on board and if you realize financial literacy is, is, a, is a vector for changing your life, the simplest thing to do above all else is to just to save and invest 10% of your income However that comes, whether it's an annual bonus or your monthly salary or if you get paid weekly, you know, what you earn weekly, if at all possible, as a bare minimum, you know, and we live in a society where sadly too few people do that. And I think too few people people do that because they don't understand in any great detail just the dividends that can be paid by doing this, especially over a lifetime of investment. So if you save and invest 10% of your income, 
into capital markets and financial markets, you've got a really, really good chance of, of well, becoming wealthy, candidly, you know, at the very simplest level. And then you've asked for three things. And I think the third thing is, is that my first book's called How to Own the World, because there's a sort of two century track record. If you want a no brainer approach to investment, we call it owning the world. And that is basically if you understand all the major asset classes and you and you invest in them in all the major geographies. So basically the, the US, Europe and Asia um, you've got a very good chance of being basically hedged by geography and hedged by assets. So that means, so, you know, if the stock market crashes, as it did in 1990, and to a certain extent last year, it doesn't matter so much if you're exposed to other asset classes that didn't crash, or if, you know, Asia's had a really good time, but America's been tricky or vice versa. Siblings, I'm like, well, Let me one. just go ahead and uh, mute that. There we go. Something That's all right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so basically financial literacy is super important. Make sure you're saving investing 10% every month. And when you do, just make sure you, you do something that gives you exposure to the right kind of mix of assets and, and to have a basic understanding of what, what those are and how to access them inexpensively. And in the UK, very tax efficiently. Because, uh, I mean, uh, that's one thing that I, a point I labor somewhat is, we have a huge advantage as British nationals. I mean, ultimately, the, the Dutch and the British invented capital markets, effectively, or the, the, the Italians basically invented the bond market, the Medici's. Um, but the, the Dutch and the British invented the stock market, um, you know, in the early 1600s, really. And because of that, Britain has an incredibly advanced financial services industry. And sadly, far too few people take advantage of that reality, much to their detriment, right? So ho hopefully that was a relatively um, sensible answer. That was a really sensible answer. And that was all off the cuff as well. And it, it worked. So, yeah, thank you for that. And, you know, it just reiterates, I suppose, a lot of the stuff that I talk about, Dentistry Invest as well. An analogy that I heard quite recently that I liked whenever it came to investing was it's a bit like driving a car. When you get it, you get it. But at the very start, when you're setting out on the voyage, it seems awfully confusing. And yeah. I quite like that because the reason why it stuck with me was everyone drives a car so they can relate to the analogy. And then also as well as that, the, the fact that when you get to a certain level of skill or aptitude, it's easy and it comes naturally to you. Yeah. Well, and also anything that's difficult, basically, the more you understand about something, the more interesting it gets. Not just the easier it gets, but the more interesting it gets. Like if you think chess is boring or American football is boring – once you actually start learning about chess or American football or anything else, it, it becomes quite interesting. And the, the automotive analogy is a really good one, James. And we, we use it, which is the way I talk about it is we think it's entirely normal as a society that nearly everybody learns how to drive. Right? That's a life skill. That everybody, you know, unless you're very unfortunate um, and you're really challenged economically, you know, most teenagers learn how to drive. And our contention is that learning how to drive is no harder a skill to acquire than learning how to drive your finances in a fundamental, basic way, in the way that we teach. And it's kind of a crazy societal blind spot that everyone thinks it's normal to learn how to drive. But when you talk to people about learning the basics of financial markets, which in terms of hours of your time is no more to acquire that skill, people go, no, 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 that's for rich people like that, that you know. I don't want to learn about the stock market. That's too complicated for me. And, and, and that's another sort of, it's a very good analogy that, well, I think, I think it is that we use. It's like, you know, spend as much time learning how to drive your finances as you learn how to drive a car. And it will, if anything, it's a life skill that will pay dividends a great deal more than, than just learning how to drive a car, right?
Real quick guys, I've put together a special report for dentists entitled The 7 Costly and Potentially Disastrous Mistakes That Dentists Make Whenever It Comes to Their Finances. Most of the time, dentists are going through these issues and they don't even necessarily realize that they're happening until they have their eyes opened and that is the purpose of this report. You can go ahead and receive your free report by heading on over to www.dentistuinvest.com forward slash podcast report or alternatively, you can download it using the link in the description. This report details these seven most common issues. However, most importantly, it also shows you how to fix them. Really looking forward to hearing your thoughts. There we are. Love it. And you know what I've always wanted to ask you, and I've never got the chance, so let's let's do it on Zoom right here, right now. I always recommend your book. Andrew, when people ask me what book should I read to get into finance, I say How to Own the World. Now, if you couldn't recommend your own book, what would you what would you recommend as a very good entry level book? Or it doesn't have to be entry level, you know, one of one of the favorite books that you feel displays the thesis of investing very nicely. Well, you can you can see over my, my shoulder there that I've got a fair well read. Um, <laughs> So that seems very it's the very pretentious thing of look at look at all my books on my bookshelf. Um, <laughs> but do you know what? Actually, I think the easiest answer to that now, um, which has only been the case for the last I don't know eighteen months or so, because that's when it was published, is Morgan Housel's book, The Psychology of Money. Oh, I mean, there's yeah, uh, you'll I know you'll have read it. There's also I mean, there's Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, which is a classic from like the nineteen twenties, which I think is brilliant about the mindset of wealth. Such a valuable book. There's actually Robert Kiyosaki, you know, people love him or loathe him now because he's kind of extended into all the other sorts of kind of high pressure internet selling and whatever else. But but um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is a brilliant book. But but in re- in the last couple of years, Morgan Housel's book, um, The Psychology of Money, is just such a brilliant explainer as to why so, of, so many of us get money and investment wrong. Like why don't, why do too few of us think about it? Um, why do so many, of, uh, so many of us get it wrong? Why do we fall foul of fear and greed? And we don't sort of do sensible things that have two centuries of evidence as to how they work. And so I think at the moment, I'd probably recommend, annoyingly enough, because his book um, has got 30,000 reviews on Amazon and mine, mine's only got 1,600 and whatever. Um, so he's, he's clearly kicked me into touch in terms of unit sales. But, um, but his books are uh, relevant to the American audience and my book's very much a British-focused book. So... I'll forgive him that, but I mean that is a really, really good book in terms of a one, a one-stop shop for understanding, you know, the nuts and bolts of finance and how important your own personal psychology is for finance. Yeah, I've I read that book and I kind I read it and I thought to myself, this almost seems like a classic how it's written. But then it referenced coronavirus in it and it caught me off guard totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was more recent than I thought. There we yeah. go. Anyway, cool. There's a thesis in your book as well. This is interesting because, again, this is something that I talk about and I think is a really nice way to structure your investing. And the thesis is when you can broadly split your investments into one or two categories, defensive and offensive. And I know you talk about this quite a lot. So for those who haven't heard of it, it might be a nice thing to explain and talk about for some value tonight. Yeah, well, I mean, because finance is, you know, notwithstanding what I said about the automotive point about it's as easy as learning how to drive a car. It is still quite intimidating. It's quite complicated. And what we're always trying to do, not least because I run a business called Plain English Finance, right, is to give a sort of fastest route from A to B, elegant, simple framework to think about finance overall. And one of those frameworks is what, what we call 100 minus your age. 
And so, and so that just to unpack that, and that's where you get the defensive and offensive, or I call it defensive and aggressive, which is, so, you know, a 30-year-old who's just sold their tech company for £20 million will have a very, very different uh, aggressive or defensive inclination and, you know, will be able to do something very different to a 30-year-old who's, you know, working in a bar and making 20 grand a year, right? So finance is incredibly personal. So, so you can never have like a one-size-fits-all panacea answer that's going to be right for everyone, but 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 notwithstanding that, we think that this idea of 100 minus your age, which isn't my idea, it's been around for decades, probably since the 50s, right? It is a very elegant sort of one-stop shop, stop shop to think about how most for most people how you think about finance, and just to unpack that. And what it basically says is, if you subtract your age from 100, it gives you the percentage of your investments that you might think about putting in aggressive assets. So, so if you're if you're thirty, a hundred minus thirty, seventy percent of your wealth of what you save and invest could potentially go into aggressive assets, and thirty percent should probably be kept in quite conservative assets. So, you know what I mean? At the very simplest level, aggressive assets would be the stock market. It would also be crypto. It would also be the biotech fund that you know I'm hoping we're going to talk about this evening, or smaller companies, or you know anything that has a chance of making. 10, 12, 15, even 20% returns annualized, right? Um, and defensive stuff is very hard these days because interest rates are so low, but traditionally defensive stuff would be gold, bond funds, cash, um, you know, and it, we've actually got a multi-asset fund, which we think is very defensive in terms of the return profile. Um, and, and so, and the reason, and so just to, to go into that a bit more detail, but if you're 70 years old, you should probably have 70% of your money in defensive and 30% in aggressive. And, and, as, and basically, our, our advice is that you only think about that every five years. You don't need to think about you know, what to do when you're 31, 32, 33. But you should broadly think at 30, I should be roughly 70% aggressive, 30% defensive. And at 35, you should be 65, 35. And at 40, you should be 60, 40 as you go through your life. And every, it's great because it means that you only actually really think about your asset allocation and how you run your basic financial affairs every five years. You don't need to do it any more often than that. Um, and, and so if you like, um, that, that gives you, you know, the reason that's really important is because, so consider a 30 year old who's got 10 grand of savings and imagine that they're actually just as a thought experiment, they're a hundred percent in aggressive assets because they're quite, they're up for some risk and they're up for making higher returns and, and so they're 100% in the market and or crypto, let's say. So 100% aggressive. And then there's a Bitcoin crash and a stock market crash. And now, and usually a stock market crash is about a 50% crash. You know, Bitcoin's been about 60%, whatever. But let's just say that they halve their money. So now they've got, they had £10,000. They've now got £5,000. That's annoying. It's painful. You know, it doesn't feel great. But consider a 60-year-old that has a million pounds that that has the same percentage fall in their assets. They've they've gone from a million to five hundred thousand, and those are two very very different problems. You know, a thirty year old losing fifty percent of their assets is not so much of a concern. They've got the rest of their life to build back up. You know, it's not going to be terminal. It's not going to particularly change their life. But a six year old who's spent thirty years plus working really hard has had a pretty high paid job, like being a dentist, and they've built up to a big investment pot of a million pounds. If they have a fifty percent crash. They're now at half a million pounds, which is really prejudicial for their loved ones and for their retirement and forever else. So that's why we think this idea of 100 minus your age to distinguish between what the appropriate amount of aggressive versus defensive allocation is, is a really, really elegant 
kind of you know universal way of looking at investment basically and then part of part of that philosophy is that obviously one would scale out into the defensive assets as time goes on correct yeah and, and exactly and as we say you don't need to do that every year but you should probably think about it maybe every five years that's a, you can paint with a pretty broad brush right but you just need to make sure that if you're 60 years old, you better not have 100% of your savings and your pension and your ISAs and your, and your assets in stuff that could fall 50%, right? You, you know, you really got to think about it like, that way. But if, but if you're 30, you probably could. Because, if you know, if you are in, I mean, UK smaller companies from 1955 until the end of 2021 returned more than 15% per annum on average. Jeez. So, you know, if you're on that journey and you just own some smaller companies, what an amazing annualized return when you're 30 but the trouble is every now and then they fall 60 percent, right so so that's why you can have these lovely kind of exciting things like biotech like what we're doing like smaller companies with that percentage of your money that's aggressive and you can be pretty relaxed about that if you're 30 or 35 or even 40 but you can't be you can't have all your money in something like that when in something volatile when you're 60 or 65 Mm -hmm. 100% 100% age is a factor and you know what that actually really neatly segues into of course your fund because in in I, be, I believe well I don't want to put words in your mouth mm. but that is something that could form part of someone's aggressive portfolio yeah and and, and the, <clears throat> so before we go any further it's really important to say I mean, it's great to have um members of the group on and thanks a lot everyone for joining us um and when i talk about this fund it's very important to telegraph that it is an aggressive fund you know, it, it, it's strictly on the the fca um the financial regulator uh, classifies things in risk buckets from basically one which is very low risk to seven which is quite which is very high risk and this is a, a product that for, that is a five so it's at the risk it's a high return high risk strategy and so definitely you know, a 60 year old with a million quid should not be putting a million quid in this product. You know, they might put five to 10% of their wealth in that product or whatever they they should put some of their aggressive allocation into a product like this. But a younger person who believes in this theory and, or this thesis and this investment case around the opportunity in life sciences and biotech um, could, you know, could, could potentially put a larger percentage of what they're doing in. But it's very important. And the, as a general comment, if anybody on this call, following this call is interested in what we're doing in biotech, um, you, I have to say, kind of because we're regulated by the FCA, that you must take account of, of the prospectus and the key investor document. And this is all on the website, the website CLS, CLSC.uk. Um, and on the website, you find you know a video of me giving the, the same presentation I'd like to give now, the prospectus, which is a very important legal document. You know, it's a big document with all the risk factors and all the necessary disclaimers that people must take account of before they consider putting an investment into into a, any any stock market listed business, right? Um, and it's important for me to flag that kind of for the tape and on a recorded um, Zoom call. 100%. Thanks for that. And we also wanted to mention as well, if anybody would like to ask anything as the presentation progresses, feel free to put your hand up, to shout out, to get our attention because it is a live and interactive Q&A. Fantastic. So then we'll... So can I take it as read that the people on the call are interested in me trotting through, you know, our latest endeavor, basically, this initiative, the Conviction Life Sciences Company? Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. that is... Anthony's the... given us a thumbs up. Thumbs up for that. Yeah. <laughs> thumbs up from Anthony. That's all we need. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so it is, we, we, we advertised it as that in the, uh, in the description. So yeah, people, yeah, Brilliant. that's what we're here for. Okay, well, look, then I'll just share my screen. 
And here, here it is, and I'll just um, – how's that? Can everybody see that? Yeah, yeah. we're good to go. It's yeah, working fine, yeah? Yeah. So, so look, I mean, the, as a, just as a preamble, we, I've spent a year of my life – I've spent eight years of my life working in the life sciences space and a year building towards this, which is a fully-fledged IPO of a company on the London stock market, on the premium segment of the London stock market. So – you know, that's the same sort of regulatory framework as Tesco or Shell or BP or whatever. You know, there, is only, there are only about 1,300 um, <coughs> fully-fledged premium-listed companies. Um, and, and we've been on this journey for a year. And, and we've been, I've, be, I've been willing to do that because of the fact that I've spent several years looking at this sector. And we, I just am a huge believer in this space, right? And, and so hopefully that's a, a useful first thing to say. Here's a disclaimer which um, people can read at their leisure um, when they consider the risk factors that I just mentioned if they go to the website. Um, but if we just get into, so I think a, a lot of your group know who I am, but for just, you know, for what it's worth, um, I've spent, uh, basically, I, I started working smaller company equities. So basically, all sorts of companies listed in the stock market across every sector um, in the late 90s, what was then SBC Warburg, so Swiss Bank, which then merged with UBS. So I've been doing smaller companies for, what's that, 24 years or whatever. Um, but for the last eight years, I've been focused specifically on biotech and life sciences and working for a firm called WG Partners, which specializes in that. And whilst I was there, I acted for just shy of 70 life science businesses. And that ranged from, you know, some scientists coming out of a top British university doing a seed funding round all the way up to um, a big FTSE 250 company or FTSE 250 companies valued at kind of three billion pounds and everything in between. Um, and, and the other thing that's important to note is so my company, Plain English Finance, has been regulated by the FCA since 2012. So, you know, you, you need to have a regulated entity in order to be able to launch something like this. And we, this isn't our first radio. We've been around for many years. As we said at the top of the call, um, for my sins, I'm a best-selling author. What's really important here, one of the really important things when you when you float a company is that um, you support it in the aftermarket. So if you like, the, the IPO is just the beginning. Um, and what, the, the reason I want to talk about being, if you like, a best-selling author is because happily my publisher, a very big publisher, Hodder and Stoughton, gave me a book deal uh, last year to publish my next book, which is called Our Future is Biotech. And our future is biotech is, um, if you like, a long form. It's it's categorically not a sales pitch for this company, right? I mean, this it will be the company is going to be launched many months before the book will be published. But the point I'm just trying to make is that this is, in some ways, this is quite a nuanced and complicated thesis, right? Why is why is biotech so exciting? Why is life sciences so exciting? And the fact that I've had a chance to write a, 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 a book about that. Hang on, is somebody asking a question? Or was that just there? Nope. You're on mute, James, by the way. Oh, sorry, mate. Uh, it, I think it might just be someone's microphone. That's all right, it's just a bit, bit of noise is off. Um, but, but it's very important to stress that, you know, the fact that we're going to be publishing a book and it's going to be a big nonfiction focused title for our publisher later this year is, is potentially very supportive of what we're doing for, for, for many reasons, right? So the other two people who are going to be running the company or the investment policy for the company with me are Dr. Luke Joe and Roderick Collins. And just to quickly explain who they are, to, to explain who the team are, Luke is a proper research scientist. His papers have been cited over a thousand times by other scientists. I was absolutely delighted when he agreed to join me to do this. Um, and he's been uh, 
I've been working with him since 2016, so I know him very well. He's originally from China, but he's been based in the UK since he did his undergraduate studies. Um, and he, he has a British passport. He's, he's based here permanently. Um, and the important thing also to mention about Luke is he has access to a team of 10 PhDs besides himself who we um, can enroll to help us with work, to do diligence and to, to, to you know, act, if you like, as an extension of the core team, which is a fantastic resource to have. And so having Luke is a huge asset to what we're doing. And then I'll just mention Roderick's been a board director of my company for the last several years. And this is what's called a closed end company. So it's floating an investment company. Many of the audience will know what investment trust is. So you might know Scottish Mortgage, for example, is an, an example of investment trust. And Roderick has been doing that sort of business for 40 years and was previously on the board of a JP Morgan investment trust. So to have that's a really good complementarity um, of skills across across the management team. So to be clear, that's the team that make the investment decisions about the companies we're going to invest in. And so then this is the board of directors of the new company that we're floating on the stock market. Um, Jeff was a shareholder in my business um, and he actually had to sell his shares in order for us to float the new company so that he's not conflicted. He's truly independent. Um, but um, Jeff's been in the city um, as, a, as a top rated analyst. He was number one rated in the sort of Oscars of the financial analyst world in the Excel survey. He's been the chairman of uh, companies valued north of a billion. And Jeff really helped me right from the beginning a year ago to build this, if you like, with a blank sheet of paper and build the right, the right structure. And that structure is an investment company, a London company, sorry, a, a London listed company that's a Guernsey registered company. And there are a number of reasons why that's very advantageous um, to, to what we're doing in terms of the optimal structure. And so Jeff's based in Guernsey and he brought along John and Grant. John is on the board of an, a FTSE 250 business. So, you know, these are, these are really high profile people. And we're just, I was incredibly honored when they agreed to join us to do this. And Grant's on the board of 91 Asset Management, which runs 130 billion pounds. Um, so those, to have those three individuals who are experts on the type of company we're IPOing um, was, was really something. But actually even more exciting than, than when those three agreed to join and to do this is Dr. Victoria Gordon. Because as I'm going to show, 25% of the investments we're going to make are going to be in the Australian stock market. Um, in Australian life sciences companies. And the reason for that is because there's a really, really clear structural opportunity in Australian life science. They have amazing science, but it's very seriously undervalued in our opinion. And Victoria is the CEO of the biggest private biotech company in Australia. And her chairman until recently was the chairman of the Australian stock market, um, Rick Holliday-Smith, who's an incredibly high profile person down there. And Nicholas Moore, her senior independent director, was until quite recently the CEO of Macquarie Bank, which, if you like, is kind of the Goldman Sachs of Australia. So, so to have, given that a quarter of what we're doing here is investing in Australian biotech companies, to have uh, Victoria and her wider network was kind of, you know, a huge result. And I, I was unbelievably honoured when she sent me an email overnight a few months ago saying that she'd be willing to join the board. So that's the team. And then what are we doing? Well, we're, we're, we're raising money into a company on the London stock market to invest in life sciences companies. And about 70% of what we invest in will be companies that are already trading on a stock market, primarily London, and as I said, also in Australia. And about 20% of the money we're going to invest will be invested in private companies. But those are in, the reason we're doing that is really because I just know sort of between three and five private companies that I've worked with for many years, which I'm extremely excited about, and we're really keen to invest in. 
So you should think about this as primarily being focused on investing in listed companies. That's quite important philosophically. Um, but but the, um, the the fact that we've been able to articulate a 20% target in terms of our investment return, so that's a 20% annualized return over the long run. To be clear, that won't come smoothly every year. You know, it's, that's not a, that's like like a bond or a cash yield. That's that's over the long run. We think we can average out to around 20% per annum. Um, you know, we've had to do a lot of heavy lifting in order to put that number in our prospectus and have it what's called verified by the lawyers that it's that there's a chance that that's a realistic target. And then on the right hand side, we just explain why we think it's a realistic target. And this is what I'm going to talk about in the next few slides. And just for everyone's benefit, um, so they don't um, curl up with boredom, um, this presentation takes, will take me about 25 minutes to get through. Um, and, and as you said, James, if anybody wants to ask a question or stop me or clarify anything I'm saying, just jump in. But on the right hand side, those points we're making are, which we'll talk about in more detail over the next few slides, is, you know, why is it realistic? Well, because these businesses, the companies, the portfolio companies that we want to own are serving absolutely enormous and very high growth markets in the biotech space. And I'll, I'll give some evidence for that. And that's because the science is developing exponentially, which I think your audience will understand more than many. You know, dentists probably have a, a much better grasp of what's going on with gene editing and cell therapy and gene therapy than, than you know, the average person. Um, so, so that's hopefully um, going to be something that's quite clear for this audience. Um, but very importantly, the, the fundamental underlying point of what we're doing here is that notwithstanding that fact, a large number of companies working in biotech and life science, medtech, medical devices are structurally undervalued, particularly the ones outside of the United States, which is our core focus in the UK and Australia, as I've said. And to unpack that statement a bit more, we believe that it is possible to buy companies at the moment that are valued, so they're capitalized at roughly where their three to five year profitability might be. So in the vernacular of um, how you use PE multiples, for example, they could be on a four to five year forward PE of one. And, and if anybody on the call who understands how you use a PE ratio, you know, if the market PE is 15, let's say, and a company re-rates to be in line with that, that multiple, so it's just on a market PE, and many of these businesses could justify being on a higher PE because they're high growth businesses with high margins, that would imply that if they're on a PE of one, they could potentially have 15x of upside, right? Now, let's be clear, not all of our companies are in that position. And in the biotech and life sciences space, it's very important to understand that you have failures, you have clinical failures, you have commercial failures. But our contention is that even if we only hit the averages, that, will, that implies a very interesting annualized return for a portfolio as a whole. So some of them will do that. Some of them will be 200 million pound companies that become much bigger companies. Some of them will do not, nothing in particular and go sideways, and some of them may even fail. But across a portfolio, this valuation opportunity is incredibly rare. And I've been doing 20, uh, smaller company equities for 24 years, and I've never seen a structural opportunity that looks like this. And that's why I've spent a year of my life you know, putting this together. So our strategy is to buy basically 40, we say 30 to 40, but it's realistically going to be about 40 companies to capitalize on that opportunity. And why us? Well, I've shown you the team on the last two slides. You know, we've all been deeply involved with the sector for years and we, we know the science, we know the companies very well. And the final point to make before I move on is that is the uniqueness here. So if you're based in the UK and you like biotech and you like the idea of investing in biotech, the only exposure that you can buy in a collective, so famous names would be Polar Capital or AXA Framlington, for example, that people might have heard of, that you can buy from your broker. 
are very much focused on American uh, biotech, uh, very, very much focused on American biotech. Or sometimes there are, there are some entities out there that are almost entirely focused on private companies. So if you want to buy really early stage stuff that's spinning out of Oxford or Cambridge, there's a way of doing that. But we are going to, this is going to be the only entity that's available um, to investors to focus on listed British and Australian companies, listed companies outside of, us, uh, of the United States. And we think that's really where the sweet spot is and where potentially the most upside is, you know, after eight years of, of focusing on that space. So this is a very boring slide. Um, and I should just mention that if anybody's interested in going through this in more detail and really trying to get to grips with it, this um, presentation is available on our website, clsc.uk. You, you can find all the documents and you can look at this in your own time. But this is an obligatory slide, which is just saying what the vehicle is. So it's a Guernsey investment company floating on the London stock market, looking to raise up to £100 million between now and the end of this month. So it's closing on the 31st of January. Um, we expect to be able to invest 90% of the money within six months, which is important because you, what we don't want to take, do is take people's cash and then just sit on the cash. You know, you need to actually get the money to work and, and start hopefully generating a return for your investors. And really importantly, it's a 1% annual management charge and a 10% performance fee, which if you like is a slightly hedge fundy performance fee, although they usually charge 20%. Um, but that only kicks in if over and above a 10% return, an absolute return. So our shareholders, so if you think um, we've, if we make a 20% return, we'll only be paying ourselves a 10% performance fee on the 10% above the 10%, if you like. So, so our shareholders keep 90% of that money. So, so we think that's very aligned with our shareholders and everybody will be delighted if we are in a position to pay ourselves a performance fee because it will imply very good returns for them. Um, and as I said, it's January the 31st, it's launching. So the next sort of, I guess, five to 10 minutes, um, hopefully not much more than that, before you do someone's popped a question in the chat which is pertinent to what you've just said i believe yeah. will i read it out sure let's do that whilst usa as the big money investors they classically buy out smaller companies who add value slash advances to them oh my bad i don't know if that was really a question more statement but anything you'd like to add to that andrew well yeah we come on to exactly that so it's so, so the the um you know, we all know that the stock market's been really challenged in the last year, right? And the stock market might continue to be challenged this year. Who knows? I, I, I mean, my gut feel is that it, it's probably not going to be as bad as people fear. But a really important uh, part of this thesis is that a number of our portfolio companies are potentially very attractive to, to the, the person who's asked that question or made that statement to big pharmaceutical companies, actually, whether they're based in Japan or Switzerland or America. Um, and, and actually... So that means if we buy a company that's currently capitalized at 500 million pounds and it's acquired by Pfizer for, let's say, a billion pounds at some point next year or this year, that's great for our portfolio performance this year. Right. But longer term, it's actually what I describe as a risk and actually really annoying because a huge part of the thesis here and a big part of our mission is that the Britain is really, really good at early stage science. We're so good at the science. We're so good at intellectual property. And, you know, look at what we did with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Look at, there's so many examples of Britain being really great. But what we're not good at is turning those businesses into multi-billion pound FTSE 100 companies, right? And that, and actually, George Freeman, the, 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 the life sciences minister, made a speech about this today at 10%, 10.15 this morning. And I was interviewed by The Express about it earlier, which I, I've put the article on the chat channel, um, which you might be able to see. Um, but but so the point is that, yes, a lot of these companies are, are candidates to be taken over. But if 
if I own a 500 million pound company that gets bought for a billion pounds next year by an American company, whilst that will be great for year one, it will be really annoying because we believe that some of these companies should be five or six or 10 billion pound companies on a five, six, seven year view, right? And what we really have a passion for in our own small way is trying to help Britain create a new Astra or a new Glaxo, right? And, and have a much more grown up um, sort of life sciences ecosystem because we should because we're really good at investment and we're really good at science and, and there are challenges around we've failed to do the past, which I talk about a bit. So just quickly, what do we mean by life sciences? You know, what are we investing? Well, crucially, it's, it's top left here. It's not just therapeutic biotech, right, which people view as risky. So it's not just companies that are trying to cure cancer or autism or diabetes. It's also med tech. So you guys will be very familiar with that, right? Dental implants, devices, diagnostics, consumables, and it's pharmaceutical services and it's digital health. So most pharmaceutical companies nowadays don't do their own clinical trials. They outsource the clinical trials to what's called a CRO, a contract research organization. And those businesses are not super risky, super early stage companies that may or may not cure cancer. They're actually operating companies that trade like high margin management consultancy firms or high margin you know, manufacturers, very high margin manufacturers if it's gene therapy, for example. So there's a lot of ballast in the portfolio and on the bottom left there, when I, I've put extremely large markets, I think actually relatively few people realize just how big this industry already is. So at the end of last year, the top 700 pharma companies in the world were valued collectively at five and a half trillion dollars. And pharma revenues were already north of one point four trillion dollars. So that's ex that's like a huge aggregate demand pull for all of the companies that we want to own in the portfolio. That, those are the markets they're addressing. And on the bottom right, what I'm showing there, cancer drug revenues and CRO, the CRO market, that, that outsourced clinical trial market. The point of what me putting that there is even the very biggest bits of this market are growing at kind of 12 or 13 percent. But more excitingly, on the top right, those boxes where we've boxed out key areas of scientific innovation. So gene and cell therapy, gene editing. These are industry segments that are growing at 30 percent per annum at the moment because the science only, has only existed for a few years and it's creating a huge amount of value and so liquid biopsy for example this one here in the middle that's a simple blood test for cancer for cancer diagnosis instead of a really invasive painful biopsy that might be under general anesthetic and is very risky for a late stage very sick cancer patient and we're teaching on the brink of being able to take a simple blood draw and make really substantive um, you know, for clinicians to use that to, for, to, as a companion to treatment and get the right treatments, that's going to be a hundred billion dollar a year market, and it didn't exist even five or six years ago. Um, so these are all very exciting, you know. And, and I imagine many of your audience are familiar with surgical robotics, um, you know, cell conscious meat, microbiome, AI, all that stuff. But that these are the areas that our businesses are addressing. And why are these all growing at such a, a phenomenal rate? Well, it's, it, this is all about science, and this is poorly understood by the general population, and it's actually not talked about nearly enough by our journalists, in my opinion, right? So the bottom left there is the 2020 Nobel Prize, which is awarded for CRISPR, the gene editing technique that I'm sure many of this audience have heard of, which is, and, and that, that press release is just making the point that for the first time really in history, you can describe this technology as revolutionary, as in, we could potentially cure cancer, or at least many cancers. You know, some are more intractable and problematic than others, but we're on the road now to having really effective cures for cancer. And the CRISPR technology in particular could start, we, could, we, we can talk very seriously about being able to cure any genetically based inherited disease. And, and that is obviously immensely exciting and can create a lot of economic value. 
And the top right quote there is just saying this has only happened in the last five to 10 years. Actually, if you work in this sector, scientists can do things today they couldn't do 18 months ago, particularly when you consider generative AI and AI and machine learning applied to drug discovery. So that, so that science is moving incredibly quickly and is exponential. And most importantly for us as investors, what does that mean for economic output and for, for potential returns? Well, McKinsey's have talked about 45% of the world's disease burden being, being addressable by 2030. And um, that's worth two to four trillion annually. Well, as I showed on the last slide, we already have 1.4 trillion of pharma revenue. So we think that's massively conservative. And this is the sort of demand pull through that our companies are confronting. And why is that? Well, it, basically, here we show that life's exponentials are more exponential than tech exponentials. And that's really important. So on the left, if you like, the last century has been all about physics and tech. And that's Moore's law, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with. Processing power per dollar spent doubles every 18 to 24 months. And Moore's law has been the fundamental underlying driver. Tech and physics have given us, you know, automotive, aviation, smartphones, the Internet, and been the, the driver of trillions of dollars of real wealth creation in the last century and 9% equity returns from US equities all the way back to 1872, which is great. And hopefully lots of you guys have benefited from that as investors. But on the right-hand side, we're showing that basically biotech exponentials are even more exponential than tech exponentials. So there's Moore's law at the top, and there's the fall in the price of sequencing a human genome, which, which in the late 90s took 13 years and cost $3 billion. And today can be done in a few hours and cost $200. And, you know, the reason the next century is going to be about biology and biotech is actually very simply because you create economic value from solving human problems. And most of our remaining problems and challenges as a species are all about biological systems. So most obviously that's, um, you know, curing cancer. That's the therapeutic setting. But, but um, it's also about rolling back environmental degradation because you revolutionize agricultural productivity. It's about limits to processing power, DNA-based computers. It's about the role that biotech will have to play in, in um, clean power generation. So, you know, biofilms on photovoltaic cells. There's an enormous amount to go for here. And we think that the trillion-dollar companies in the next few decades will all emerge from biotech because that's where all the value needs to be created. Um, so the next three slides, just very quickly, um, five sort of inherent structural drivers for the industry. So the first is, and many of these you guys will be familiar with, the first one is demographics and global growth. Basically, the older a population is, the more healthcare it consumes. The fatter a population is, the more healthcare it consumes. And the richer a population, the more healthcare it consumes, which is why China is now the second biggest healthcare market in the world and is forecast to be bigger than the States in the relatively near future. Basically, developing countries spend about two to five percent of their GDP on healthcare. Very advanced developed countries spend fifteen to seventeen percent on healthcare. So there's a huge demand pull through as company as countries develop economically, right? And we're not even, you know, there's so much to go for with respect to that. If you think about India, Pakistan, Indonesia, Latin America, right? There's so much more to come through. On the right hand side. One of the biggest challenges for companies that are, you know, launching drugs or medical devices is the regulatory piece. And again, you guys will know all about this, but the, with the FDA in America, the EMA in Europe um, and the NMPA in China, for example, it regulators impose serious cost and time on getting drugs to market. But the good news is that those costs are coming down and the time to market is speeding up. 
Um, and if you look at any chart of the number of drugs approved every year, that's been getting more and more and more for many, many years. So it runs from bottom left to top right. And that's really important for these businesses. And that's been supercharged in the last couple of years by COVID. Because why did we get a vaccine in 10 months? And whereas it took 20 years to get an Ebola vaccine because, for the, because of the political expediency of the regulators having to move as quickly as the science could permit. Um, and, and we think there's a quote there from the British law firm Linklaters that credits the idea that that's been a structural step change. And so now all over the world, regulators are motivated to move more quickly. And I don't know if you guys have seen, but um, the British government have announced that they're doing a 10,000 patient cancer trial with BioNTech on RNA based cancer vaccines. So this is all examples of what's going on. This is very, very topical. It's, you know, there was a piece about it in the Express today. There was a piece about it in the FT last week. But basically, the regulatory environment's getting um, better for these businesses, which is really important for value creation. Um, two more structural drivers on this slide. On the left, very simply, this is wherever you go in the world, this is a key strategic sector for governments, and there's a lot of government support, right? Because it creates, it pays above average wages, it creates a lot of economic value. In Britain, we've announced a billion pounds for, to support life sciences. In the context of 135 billion spent on the NHS, that's a drop in the ocean. And I think the key point here is that from the vantage point of five or 10 years from now, that will look like a tiny number. And that is very clear to see the direction of travel. So there's loads of money from governments wherever you are in the world. 25% of what we're doing is in Australia. I don't know whether many of you will be aware, but Australia has these things called super funds, the supernational funds. They have three trillion dollars in them. And we, Victoria, our board director, can actually lobby Canberra herself. She's an ex-government scientist. And we think there's a chance. They've already founded a 20 billion fund in Australia. We think there's a chance in the lifetime of this company existing that the Australian government could earmark a portion of those three trillion dollars to support their domestic life sciences industry, which would be a very, very positive thing for our Australian companies. Um, so that's so if you like, that's the, the public sector on the right hand side is the private sector. Key point, there's four and a half trillion dollars of capital pointed at this sector, which is almost unlike any other sector apart from perhaps the energy sector. One and a half trillion sits with Big Pharma on their balance sheets. So, you know, Mega Pharma, Astra, Glaxo, Novartis, Pfizer, Takeda, etc. One and a half trillion. Now, whatever you think about ESG investing, some people love it. Some people think it's kind of greenwashing. The simple fact is it's the number one. This is the number one rated sector for ESG investing because it's all about curing cancer and curing children with leukemia. And, you know, so it's a, it's a very good ESG sector. And there's one and a half trillion dollars in ESG equities. There's another one and a half trillion sitting on the balance sheet of, of um, specialist VC and PE funds looking at this sector. So, so there's really no other sector like it with that amount of money, which is very supportive of any company that's got you know, good science, basically. And the final one, which is a bit more of a specialist one, I know, so I'll kind of go through it quickly. But for people who do understand equity analysis, how do you analyze shares? Life sciences companies which succeed inherently have very high margins, very strong cash generation because they have long duration patent protection, you know, 20 year plus patent protection of their IP um, and long product cycles as a result. So, from, so they can go from being a loss making R&D based early stage biotech company to being a company that's making a billion dollars of revenues at a 70% margin for years. And that's unlike any other sector, which is why some of these companies can be the best performing companies in the stock market. And that's why, so point B here, the uh, biotech sector in the States has done kind of mid-teens returns 
for, for actually for the last 20 years. We've shown the last 10 or so years on that chart. Um, and notwithstanding the fact that this year has been a very difficult year for biotech, the long run, if you like, the line of best fit is that we, we as a board and as an investment team believe that, that those are realistic returns. So if the big American biotechs are doing double-digit returns, like mid-teens returns, that implies that earlier stage exciting companies outside of America could potentially do, to, do even better than that. Um, and so just quickly breezing on, this is really important. So notwithstanding everything I've said in the last many slides about how exciting it is and you know, all the, the drivers and all the, 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 the structural arguments for why there's so much value in this sector, outside of the United States, the sector is really, really undervalued, which is why you can buy companies capitalized at 200 million quid that might make 200 million quid of EBIT or net profit in a few years' time, and so are therefore potentially very interesting. And that's because of the investment industry and not because of the companies themselves. And just to explain that, these companies by definition are smaller companies and smaller companies, all the money that is tasked with investing in smaller companies is run by generalist fund managers. So they're people who are much more comfortable investing in EasyJet or Marks and Spencers or Games Workshop or ASOS than they are in investing in a sort of complicated science-based company. That's been the case historically. People on the call who've heard of Neil Woodford, Neil Woodford had a huge negative impact on this sector. So did Brexit. So did a couple of regulatory changes um, that the, the, the regulator made in the last few years called RDR and MIFID II. So the point being is in the rear view mirror for the last 10, 15, 20 years plus, this sector has been really kind of unloved by the people who have all the money who could be investing in the sector. So then if you're somebody like me and you've been working in this sector for the last eight years, well, then surely you should just then call the people who are interested in the sector, right, which is basically the specialist investors, most of whom sit in the United States. But they have not been interested either in British and Australian companies for two simple reasons. They are running massive funds. They're billions of dollars. So that means that they, they can only have a few dozen um, positions, you know, own a few dozen companies. So they have to deploy $100 million at a time or maybe $50 million. So if I go to them with a 200 million pound British company that's every bit as good as a $1 billion American company, they just have to draw the lines from and say, look, I, can't, I haven't got the time to look at that. Like, I, I, can't, I can't get enough capital to work. I can't look at it. And that's been my experience at the coal face of doing this for the last eight years. And they also have 300 of their own biotech companies to look at. They have to keep an, an eye on all the large cap companies wherever they sit in the world. And so that's the reason why in the UK, very few people are supporting these companies. And then in the, in the States and at a place like Singapore and Asia and, and elsewhere in Europe, there are very few people supporting these companies. And so that, that, if you like, is in the rear view mirror. And we describe that as an example of market failure. So wherever there's market failure in, in economics there's, and there's a crisis as a result, that's an opportunity. And, and, so, and so, the, so the first thing to say about that is, the companies that make it through this problem, that have made it through this problem and become big enough to be attractive to those special investors are some of the best performing companies in the stock market. And in the past, several companies have done that, many of whom I've worked for. Our contention is that in the future, there'll be many more that do that. And I'll explain why that is on the next two slides, which is basically enough is enough valuation wise. So we're not the only people in the world seeing this opportunity. A lot of the very biggest, smartest um, healthcare investors are looking at British companies now. And in the past, they would have said, oh, look, I'm too busy. I, I haven't got enough time. And they're now saying, 
God, those valuations are so ridiculous that, you know, why would I pay $2 billion for this American company when actually I can get similar quality intellectual property and maybe, a, you know, a, 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 as good a potential cure for breast cancer or fibrosis or whatever else these companies are addressing from investing in a much cheaper, smaller British company. And just as an example of that actually having happened to a client of mine, Red X PLC there on the bottom right is now 90% owned by big specialist American, uh, well, Red Mile and Sofanova are primarily American. Sofanova is originally French. Platinum's Australian. Polar Capital is one of the few specialist UK funds. But that's the, I call that the first swallow of summer. So that's the first time really ever that big overseas VC funds have said enough is enough. That's a really interesting business. And I think this is, what's a, this is a key part of our thesis because a lot of that money and there's many, many billions. There's a tidal wave of capital that now could potentially be given consideration to these structurally undervalued businesses. But much simpler an argument, that's a kind of funds flow argument, is what we, is simply commercial delivery. Because in the eight years, Years like these companies, they've gone from being very early stage loss making companies, years and years away from making any revenues. You know, really science driven companies with a kind of twinkle in their eye about doing something consequential in life sciences, to being right now very close to revenues or profitability and or profitability. Um, and so what that means is that there's a very, there's a significantly increased chance that that the investors all over the world will start looking at that. And what what happens is Let's say you're a 250 million pound company and you announce that you've had a successful clinical trial and you do a big deal with AstraZeneca or Pfizer or someone. You're probably then going to be a five, six or even 700 million pound company. And at that point, you're big enough to attract the interest of specialist investors. And if you're profitable, you're likely to attract the interest of generous investors. So that tidal wave of money is now more likely to invest in you. And that's why some of these businesses can literally go 100, 200 million, 500 million, 700 million, 1 billion and beyond in, a, in four, five, six years. There's been a bit of that in the past. I think there's going to be a lot more of that in the future. And the final thing to say about that is when a company is a 700 million pound company, it has a chance of being included in the FTSE 250 index. And when a company gets included in an index, there's index buying. And a lot of people in the world look at the FTSE 250 index, and that gives you natural demand for the company that can blast on even further. So there's a series of very clear steps that can potentially take these companies from being, say, a two, three hundred million pound company to being a one, one and a half billion pound company. And this is unlike pretty much any other sector in the ability for companies to do that for these structural reasons. Um, and here are just eight companies that have done that in, historically, four on the left that have done that and been bought, been acquired, and four on the right that are still trading on the market but have gone up a lot in the last 10 years or so. Um, and the reason I've chosen these is because six of them were my clients previously. And so, you know, I've been very close. I've been at the table as, as this has happened. Um, and I just quickly point to Actelion, bottom left. Actelion was acquired for $30 billion by Johnson & Johnson in 2017, which was significantly more than 10x in 10 years. And, and the point there is it had $2 billion of revenues the year before. And we think a number of our portfolio companies have that revenue opportunity, but they're currently capitalized south of a billion. So imagine if they deliver, that's the sort of, you know, potential upside you may have in some of these businesses. And then on the right hand side, I just highlight Imugene. That was one, one Aussie cent a share in Jan 2012. It peaked near 60 cents a share. So it was up 60x nearly in five or so years. It's since come back because the biotech market's corrected. But the reason I mention it 
So it's, it's still up 20x. But the reason I mention it is that it went on the journey I just set out on the previous page. Basically, important scientific clinical trial readout, so a few investors, some specialist investors, and then it went into the Australian ASX 300 index and then had loads of buyers. So, so you know, this is something that's happened in the past. We think it's going to happen a lot more in the future. So the last few slides, given all of the above, we think now is the time to, to build a portfolio to capitalize on that by owning some of these companies. We're going to take about 40 positions. 70% of them are, are already quoted on stock markets, whether that's in London or Australia. 20% are private because, as I said earlier, they're private companies that we're really keen to own and we know really well. And we'll always keep about 10% of cash, which is kind of for good order. And so that we're in a position to invest in any of our companies that need to raise a bit more money um, to help them get through to the next stage. 65% in the UK, basically, and 25% in Australia. And then on the, the right-hand side, all those pie charts are showing you is the top right is that it's 40% biotech, 30% medtech, 30% hybrid. So that's a business that does more than one thing. So that's inherently less risky than if it was 100% biotech, um, which is important to stress. And you should think about the top 10 holdings being about 5% of our money, the next 10 being about 2% of our money, and the bottom 20 being a sort of one or a half percent or 1% position. So we describe them as oaks, saplings, and acorns. So big high conviction positions. Importantly, a third of these companies are capitalized already at more than $500 million. And that's important because it enables us to buy them relatively easy because they're liquid and they're available to buy on the stock market. And just quickly, the businesses of the businesses we want to own, the, the ones that are biotech companies, so do have assets between them, have 135 clinical assets. And on the left, we're showing you where the disease indications those assets are addressing. So quite heavily into cancer because there's a lot of value in cancer, but lots of other ones. And then on the right shows you where those businesses are in the clinic, where those assets are in the clinic. And the point to make there is that 43 of those assets are phase two, phase three or on market. So, you know, potentially very valuable. And then and then on a three, four, five year view, there are 65 preclinical assets there. So there's a lot more to come through and a lot to say, a lot of news flow coming through. So on the next couple of slides. I won't read these all out, but basically what we want to stress is that we've codified our buy policy. We've written down the specific things that our companies must have for us to make an investment. So they must be addressing a huge market, be first in class or best in class. And crucially, we can't be the only people who think they're good. They need to be val have validation from those things on the bottom left. So we have to see that other scientists, other investors um, are also you know, fans of these companies, not just ourselves. At the moment, it's very important these businesses have enough money to be able to deliver um, value. Um, so that's a key focus for us. And a, a, an important point to make that many of you guys will understand already is if you talk to generalists who don't understand the healthcare market, they'll often say, oh, there can never be $400 billion a year of cancer drug revenues because healthcare systems can't afford it. You know, not even the United States can afford it, which is not true because drugs are only 15% of healthcare costs and they tend to drive down the other 85%. And as I get, I mean, you guys probably know this stuff, but Gilead's hepatitis C drug costs $24,000, but it probably it often present, prevents a liver transplant that costs $600,000. And, and that's important, and these health economics work. But the final thing to say there is these, the costs of these treatments are coming down exponentially. So one of our portfolio companies took the cost of a treatment for Novartis down from a few million dollars a dose to a few hundred thousand dollars a dose, which made it economic when it was approved and launched. 
And now it's a few tens of thousands of dollars a dose, which means that that technology can be applied to large cancers, um, which is utterly transformational and, and going to create a vast amount of value. So we think a portfolio of these companies gives you a very asymmetric risk reward, particularly because we're buying platform companies that can generate multiple assets from their intellectual property. We're including picks and shovels companies, so operating companies, manufacturers, not just bleeding edge biotech. We think technology is making drug development less risky because, again, you guys will all know this, but AI and machine learning can do 100 million compounds a day, whereas 10 years ago, a, a, a human being could maybe do half a dozen. You know, that's a very recent development. And that's very important. We think the valuation is very interesting. And with 135 clinical assets, arithmetically, we're going to have a lot to say about the portfolio every quarter, right? We're, there's going to be news flow all the time. Um, it won't all be good news flow. Hopefully, a fair bit of it will be, but we're going to always have something to say. There's just a slide with three examples of companies that, if you like, are, are valued on a forward P of one. So the company on the left there is currently valued at 200 million quid. It's already said publicly that it stands to own um, milestone payments on its partnered programs of 740 odd million dollars. Well, we all know that clinical trials can fail, but let's say it, it only earned a third of that. It's on a P of one. So it's worth 200 million, but it stands to make 200 million just from succeeding with a third of its clinical trial milestones. And that means the market's giving it no credit at all for everything else it can do and for what the company's core focus is with R&D. And there are a fair number of companies of which this can be said. The final thing to say is we have a codified sell policy. So this is a buy and hold strategy. But if any of the five things happen on the right hand side, we have to call a formal investment committee meeting and decide whether or not to partially or fully exit that position. So, you know, this is to ensure we, we don't leave money on the table and we sell at an appropriate time because selling is every bit as important as buying, right, In when you're investing in equities. And so the last slide, I'm sure you'll be relieved to hear that rather than listening to me drone on for any much longer, is um, that just in conclusion, we think it's, a you know, in 24 years of doing smaller companies, I think it's the best structural opportunity I've seen, which is why I've you know, given up more than a year of my life working towards this because of the science, because of the size of the markets that these address and how, how growthy they are. Um, because of that, all those tailwinds, the demographics, the, you know, the, the, the structural stuff I talked about a few slides ago, because of the undervaluation, this is the only way you can get pure exposure to this theme specifically. Um, it's in a closed end structure, which is the right structure. We have the right team. We know all the companies. You know, we know the CEOs, we know a lot of the other investors, we know a lot of the scientists, we know a lot of the clinicians. And the fact that I'm publishing a book later this year, we think is actually really meaningful because it will be potentially supportive of the aftermarket. Um, because, if, you know, if I'm selling several thousand copies of that book every month, that will generate naturally generate into, you know, this is interesting. What's this person doing? And here we are. We have a London listed company that is implementing an investment that that captures all of those ideas about biotech and the value of biotech so i'll shut up now and i hope that wasn't too boring and um that's the, that's the team that are helping us do this and float it on the london stock market and i'm delighted to take any um any questions i know that there's quite a lot on the on the chat channel thank you so much for that andrew i You're very welcome no and again relevant totally totally pertinent and relevant to dentists as well given Given our background, uh, yes, there's a few questions that floated in. I'll go ahead and read some of these out. So yeah. this is a question, 
this is in reference, I think, to something that you that you that I believe you said during the presentation. Uh, I'll read this question out, and then hopefully uh, it might conjure up the exact moment that it's in reference to. Yeah. Yes, the FDA made COVID exceptions, but clinical trials still necessary to avoid litigation risks, which government agreed with big companies like Pfizer to give immunity. Yeah. How likely is it these regulatory barriers get reduced to something more practical, like two years or less? Hmm. So, so it's it's not going to get reduced to two years. But the the simple the the point is just that. It's, it's a soft point that the, the regulators are better funded and they're moving as so so if you speak to people who were working in biotech in the late 80s which I've done a fair bit you know all the war horses have been around the bar, whether they're investors or management teams or chair, chairman or whatever they'll tell you that in the late 80s when Genentech was first coming up with the first kind of um, biotech products the FDA the, the American regulator literally didn't have scientists that understood what they were doing. So, you know, obviously it took them years to approve. It took them years. So this is like, this is just how modernity develops and how tech develops, right? Is we're all very, very slow. And it's a, it's a gradual incremental acceleration of, of everybody's ability to understand the science. But you can kind of understand that you've got Nobel Prize winning science that's incredibly novel. And, and the regulators, you know, many, many years off the pace. And, and that's why it took, it took more years than it might have done for the regulator to be able to actually understand the science and therefore approve it and all we're saying is that they've been catching up for decades right and they now have incredibly good scientists i mean in fact a lot of people who work at the fda previously worked at the r&d departments of big pharma um which which you know asks, asks questions about the kind of revolving door and the relationship between them right and that's a different issue but the, the simple fact is COVID gave a political expediency for the regulators to move even more quickly. And there's a lot being written and a lot being talked about in the sector, in the industry, about the fact that there will all, you will always have to have proper clinical trials. A preclinical can now be, you know, a lot of preclinical work can be done in silica, which can shortcut things and bring costs down. So it can be done with smart computers rather than killing loads of mice and mini pigs and, and, and primates, right? Um and then in the in the when you get into man, a, a better funded and, a, and a, a more motivated regulator, whether they're in Europe or the States or China, is good news, all other things being equal, for how quickly these companies can get drugs approved. So the science basically the science is better and it's and there's a chance it'll move. And that and that's the evidence there really already is that's why you had like fifty-eight new chemical entities approved the year before last which is above the long run average about of about 40 a year for the previous 10 years right so there there's a lot more there are lots more drugs being approved because of this fact right All right so does that that was um anthony, anthony so, so does that anthony was that a useful answer cool anthony do you want to jump on the camera actually that'd be nice we could see you maybe, maybe not maybe now is not the time all right, well, <laughs> whilst you're... Uh, and then he, by that, the way, uh, James... <clears throat> Sorry, I just switched my mic on, yeah. No, no, that was great. <clears throat> it's just, as you know, that the regulatory side uh, can be a, a great pain, really. Uh, they have to be thorough. Well, They're frightened of missing something. Uh, absolutely, but I just think that the... You know, and that's the ongoing. So Victoria is going through clinical trials right now. New, she's got numerous phase two running, phase two trials running in the UK and in trial centres in the States and in Australia at various different stages as well in terms of, you know, she might get fast track status in, in, in Australia for a melanoma uh, product. Um, and she, you know, if you get her at the end of a long day to talk about the trials of being, you know, the tr tr 
trials and tribulations of dealing with the regulators it's there's a lot she'll have to say about that and so does any biotech ceo but it, i think the, the the it is getting better and they're better fun and they move faster just to a question about aj bell um did you, if you're on our website and you go to the um you go to the how to invest page and click on the aj bell um logo it'll take you straight through to the specific conviction life sciences page mm-hmm. And just to explain that, so all the investment platforms, the way their search function works is it uses CDOL or ISIN codes that you only have after you floated on the stock market. So it's been a bit of a challenge for us. So you can't, if you go and try and search for conviction license on Hargreaves, Zanza or Intel Investor or AJ Bell, you won't find it, which is because the, the only way you find it is if you're actually on their IPOs and new issues page. Um, so, we're, so actually we're sending an email out tomorrow to our email audience to clarify to please use the links because if you go in the new issues but you'll find it but it's quite hard to find which is a bit frustrating for us but it's it's all there okay and yeah, uh, you're just can... contrasting that with the ipo offer because an ipo is uh, in my head it's usually like a kind of early market offer is that not correct or um well i mean uh, yeah it is an initial public offer but you know ipos can be very big companies right you know a big private company that the ipos could be a multi-billion pound company um, we, part of the reason that we are using the stockbroker we're using to lead this short capital is because they are one of the relatively few that can put an IPO on the investment platforms in what's called an intermediaries offer, which is, you know, it's getting more and more common, but it gives people up and down the country who might want to put it in their ISA or their pension or whatever the opportunity to participate sure. in an IPO. So is the price kind of fixed at the moment and then will go variable? Exactly. So it's, okay. it's, it's priced at 100p a share, which is Got conventional. Um, and so so you buy the shares at 100p and then, yeah, let's hope they're, they're more than 100p in the, full, in the fullness of time, not less. But, you know, the, the, this is, the, as I said at the top of the call in terms of risk factors, you know, we're, we're aspiring to targeting a 20% annualised return, but that won't come smoothly, you know. Um, I think. Sure. No, sorry, it was only a very quick scan on the site, and obviously I was trying to listen to you at the same time. So no, great. Well, but do the please, clarification helps me just cut through a lot of uh, reading. And, so I, thanks and for I, that. Pre- I appreciate the question because I've I've probably had I've literally had dozens of people in the last month get in touch saying, you know, I, I want to invest and I can't find it on AJ Bell. I can't find it, on, and so which has been slightly painful that like, manually answering all those inbound inquiries. So I'm glad you asked the question. But if you go on the How to Invest page and just click on the logo of whoever your broker is, it will take you through to the, the correct page. Thank you very much. Thanks for your questions. Top stuff. We've got another question in the chat, but I've got a question which I sure. believe will be interesting. So biotech is the theme within that there'll be certain trends which are hot within the theme mm. you know so you said you said CRISPR there you know we're gonna have like gene edit and all of this stuff yeah right? what are what are the themes within the theme so to speak that have caught your eye or are interested yeah well the, the first thing to say is that um it, strictly it's life sciences not biotech and the distinct and that's what on, on that slide okay. at the beginning where i defined it just to define what that is, so so biotech is conventionally understood to be therapeutic, right? Um, uh, whereas life sciences encompass encompasses medtech as well. So you know, surgical robotics or a diagnostic machine that has consumables. So you might have a cartridge for each blood sample, or you know, you you many of you will know what a next generation sequencer is or a PCR machine. You know, like you do. Um, so if you if you if if somebody gives a stool sample to a hospital, that then gets run through an NGS or a PCR. Those businesses are much more like uh, a sort of, 
you know, a Japanese electronics company, right? Because it's it's a machine that might be fifty or a hundred thousand pounds that the hospital buys, and then it's consumables and and lots of recurring revenue from doing tests, and that's quite a different return profile and risk return um, um, profile to a biotech that's going to spend a hundred million dollars to potentially cure biliary cancer, and it either will or it won't. So that so that was the key point that we were trying to share at the beginning is that forty percent of what we're doing is therapeutic so companies working on novel cures for diseases but um the rest of it is medical devices and 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 for example um pharmaceutical services companies so companies that run clinical trials for big pharma at a great margin and those those businesses have two-year forward order books like a big management consultant so it's a very different dynamic and that makes the it should make the portfolio inherently less risky all other things being equal than having 100 percent biotech but then in terms of the the interesting subsectors. Well, that's why we put. Um, I won't share screen again, but that that slide there, the boxed ones at the top, is really the the what we think are the most interesting areas of innovation. And really, we only need one or two companies that are primarily exposed to each of those areas. Um, you know, we have a company that's in liquid biopsy. We have a company that's in surgical robotics. Um, and what so what we want to do is is place what we deem to be a very very good quality bet on each of these areas, which themselves are potentially growing as much as 30% a year. So if your company does well, um, it's got scope to be, you know, a, a lovely small cap equity story, basically. Um, but James, the other thing is to say is, you know, everybody who's on our email list, you can join the CLSC email list from our website. And we will be talking about all this stuff regularly to our investors, right? Um, Ch- Chandon, um Vanguard won't because Vanguard only sell their own funds. They don't sell, they don't allow you to invest in single stocks. 100%. Thank you for that. One more question in the chat just here. Just curious. Okay, so I'm going to read, read this question. I quote unquote. Just curious in the biotech sector, do you think stem cell treatments and research may show significant growth? So this goes back uh, to the themes and the themes. Uh, absolutely. Um, stem cells are a fascinating area. They're also quite a complicated area. Um, so there's a company in Australia called Mesoblast, which has gone from sort of tens of millions to a peak, a couple of billion in the last few years with the stem cell um, technology. It induced pluripotent stem cells as a Nobel Prize winning technology. I think it was the 2013 Nobel Prize. Is basically, I mean, everybody on the call understands what stem cells are. You know, omnipotent, pluripotent, totipotent. And there's the whole scale of what you can do with them, mesenchymal stem cells at different levels. And um, the, f- for a long time, there were these ethical issues, which was a big part of the Bush administration, because you can't take um, embryonic stem cells because, you know, the Catholic Church and many other religious faiths view that as, uh, as the same as abortion, right? Until this te- Nobel Prize winning technology in 2013 with induced pluripotent stem cells, where you could basically engineer pluripotent stem cells in the lab so you didn't need to to if you like murder embryos anymore um but one of the big challenges around stem cells uh, for um the companies that are trying to use them therapeutically is that they you need for any drug you need the the fda need to sign off the supply of the material and if you're using stem cells it's very hard to guarantee that the material is almost always exactly the same and so that's one of the challenges. But it's an area we're looking at. There's, there's at least one company we want to own that's working in stem cells we're very excited about. They actually have a stem cell manufacturing technology. So, yeah. And just quickly, um, somebody, uh, yeah, I know. Well, Anthony said uh, clsa.co.uk. We've got clsc.uk. So um, 
So perhaps we should pick up co.uk. Um, we'll see how we go. Um, and then the other question about... Um, I think that I think that might have been it in terms of the questions. Does anybody want to jump on and ask anything? Yeah, I had one question. Uh, hey, Andrew. I'm James Olsen. Hi, Mark. Very nice to meet you. Hey. Thank, thanks a lot, by the way, to all of you for sitting through this at 9 o'clock at night. <laughs> Um, your IPO was originally targeted for the 13th of December and it's been postponed yeah. for six, seven weeks um, because some investors wanted a little more time to complete yeah. due diligence. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about any of their concerns and how much money you've raised so far, if you're aware. Yeah, so so the, what actually happened was, um, as happens in these, you know, pulling an IPO together is a, is a huge labour. I mean, there are 49 legal documents that we had to attend to, right? And there are a couple of external consultants and, and actually the platforms were one of the delays, but we were delayed by about three weeks from our original targeted launch date where the prospectus will be published. You can't really market to people until you've got a prospectus published, right? Um, you can do some pre-marketing to very sophisticated big investors, but you can't market to most investors. And so the, we only ended up with two weeks between when it finally was live on Hargreaves, Nansdown and AJ Bell and the prospectus was live and the 13th of December. And so there was a there was a discussion had by all of us as to whether we just immediately say, look, we're not we're not going to try and close this by Christmas because we've only got two weeks and let's just extend the deadline now. And then there was a countervailing view that, you know, we didn't really want to go through Christmas um, because you just try and close it before Christmas. Right? But anyway, I don't want to bore you with the details, but the the key, the, a handful of key investors who could be really quite big are still. So, so to give you an idea, this week and next, I'm, think, I'm seeing 30 institutional investors, um, you know, many of whom I've already seen. Um and so, yeah, today's been pretty brutal. Yesterday and Monday were pretty brutal and tomorrow will be pretty, pretty, pretty brutal. But um, we, we can't say publicly what the book looks like. What I can say is, for example, so we had some anchor tenants already, you know, but doing an IPO is always you need quite a lot of money. What I can say is that the demand from the retail market on the platforms, Hargreaves would describe as a multiple of, of the next best IPO from last year, um, you know, which is great. To, to, to be clear, though, that that's not... You know, don't think that that's two hundred million pounds because the, the, it's a very difficult market. I mean, the, the other challenge is that um, uh, you know, with Nasdaq down thirty x thirty whatever percent last year, and Tesla down seventy percent, and Bitcoin down whatever it is, people are licking their wounds. So you know, on the one that the market takes away with one hand because people are pretty risk averse at the moment. But it gives with the other hand because that's why we're so excited to constitute the portfolio because all the portfolio companies are so cheap at the moment, right? So we need to thread the needle. But we got, I think we, you know, between now and the 31st of December, it relies on a lot of movement in the next few days. And I'm not afraid to admit that, right? But, but you know, we, we're seeing a lot of institutional investors and I'm hopeful that that will all come through. Top stuff. Thanks for that question, Mark. It's important stuff. Anything else? Happy with that? Yeah, so well, help help us um, help us get it live. <laughs> Boom, love it, Mark. Thank you so much. Uh, okay, uh, anybody else want to shout out any mini any last minute questions? Feel free to jump in. And just whilst we're doing that, uh, I know that you said that you can find it on your website when you click on your respective platforms logo. Yeah. And then also there's a way to access it within each platform as well when you go to the IPO section. I believe is what you said. 
yeah so, so if i just actually put it on the chat channel so if you just click on that um then and scroll down you see all the um the brokers that are up in lights their logos you just have to click on their logos and it takes you through smashing stuff okay well andrew we're coming up to the hour and a half mark which absolutely flew by there's a ton of gems in there and you know what it's nice to see how you can place a fund like this within your overall investment strategy, which harkens back to what we were saying earlier at the start with the aggressive and defensive funds, of course. Yeah. Andrew, it's been wonderful to have you back on the platform once more. Guys, good to see such a flipping great turnout. We actually had, we had, we had 50 people uh, on the group at one point, which is good to see, which I'm super happy with. This podcast, this live, sorry, will be going up as a podcast over the next few days and it will be remaining as a live at the top of the group for those who wish to watch it again. Flipping tremendous turnout. Andrew, is there anything that you'd like to say in conclusion this evening before we wrap up? No, other than what I should say, and I did say it at the top of the call, but, you know, it's, it's really important that I always stress this from a compliance standpoint. You know, everyone must give consideration to the risk factors. You know, this isn't, I can't just stand and go, you should buy this, you should buy this. It's very, very important that people understand that, you know, you only invest in something like this if it's appropriate, um, and and it's very important for me to stress stress that. Um, you know, for for compliance reasons, whenever I'm speaking to investors, but but um, the, the, all of that disclaimer material is on the website when you go onto it. Um, but it's it's really important for me to be clear about that. Top stuff, nice one. Well, once again, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Looking forward to having you back on the platform very soon. And once again, wonderful to see everybody this evening. I shall see you all later. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, James. Thanks, Love Andrew. Thanks, James. It was a Cheers. good session. Cheers. Thanks, Bye-bye. Anthony. All the best. Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit follow or subscribe so you can stay up to date with information on new podcasts which are released weekly. Please also feel free to leave a positive review so others can learn about this podcast and benefit from it. I would also encourage any fans of the podcast to sign up to the free Facebook community from which the podcast originated. Please search Dentists Who Invest on Facebook and hit join to become part of a community of thousands of other dentists interested in improving their finances, well-being and investing knowledge. Looking forward to seeing you on there.